Welcome to Audio Sketch, a chamber-made podcast dedicated to innovative artists working across performance, sound and music. I'm Rosalind Odes, and today I'm joining you from the lands of the Gadigal people, also known as Sydney. It gives me great pleasure to introduce this episode's guest artist, Justin Tapasito Shoulder, who also goes by the pseudonym Phasmahammer. Justin describes Phasmahammer as an eco-cosmology of alter personas based on queer ancestral myth, with an innovative practice that spans visual arts, performance, club culture, theatre and film. Justin's built a body of work that is visceral, otherworldly, and spectacular. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for joining me for this art date. I'm really excited to be meeting you. Thanks so much for having me. One question I like to start with, because Mm. the focus of this work is sound. If you were to describe yourself as a sound right now... Oh, wow. What sound would you choose? It would be the types of sounds you hear under the ocean, that muffled crunching of coral and the muffling of the sounds from above, perhaps some sonar. I've been spending a lot of time snorkeling and I feel quite a calling to the aquatic space at the moment for both its generative possibility and as a kind of like creative opening. And I guess thinking about the perception of other beings and how they might listen or what kind of organs they would use to interpret their surroundings, whether that's through vibration or what organisms have ears or what other kinds of organs do they have. I guess that's something I've been thinking a bit about. As I touched on in my introduction, your practice straddles a lot of different art forms and contexts. What attracts you to fostering such a a multifaceted approach to your art making? I guess I've been working in so many different forms because I'm very excited about the possibility to tell stories, but also to be in constant practice. I actually studied digital media, photography and sound and video. And I started working full-time in retouching as a practice, but simultaneously I was kind of entering nightlife spaces and had a real calling to them, mostly because I needed something very physical to kind of get me off the screen and into my body. That type of working and co-creating space and doing in events has really come about because I feel a constant desire to be in collaboration. I think that's a big part of it. Because you work in those different contexts Mm. like film, club culture, Mm. theatre, choreography, do they feed each other? Oh, for sure. I like how the languages that I cultivate from all these different spaces can cross-pollinate. In many ways, the the club is a kind of foundational space, but translating it to a space like the theatre you have a much more focused type of attention from the audience that I really enjoy. All these different spaces and cross art forms offer different ways to go into the detail of each cosmology and each creature and each story. Yeah, I can see that club culture leading into your creature building because I feel Mm. like clubs are sort of places where these fantastical creatures are on, on show. Totally. I've always seen them as a kind of incubator. They really do offer a space of experimentation and play that I feel like all my best ideas have come from. 
Yeah, it's exciting. So I really wanted to speak to you about your work, Carrion, mm. which I, I just think is an amazing work and, and really moved me and really stayed with me. describe Carrion for people that haven't seen it. It's a, a solo work created and performed by yourself and it seems to trace the origin story of a, an alien creature who is part organic, part mechanical, um, existing somewhere between human, animal, android um, and we witness this hybrid creature's mighty struggle to hatch mm. and scavenge and explore and continue to evolve in this post-apocalyptic landscape accompanied by an epic sound score by Corin Aleto. How am I going? How oh, would no, you no. describe I, it? I, I feel like you've totally like <laughs> interpreted it so well. I guess the seed is the mask. That it's kind of a death mask. It's a copy of my face, um, made a mold with my sister, and then we kind of did a plastic fact form over the the mold. And I found these cords, these very intuitive the iPhone cables, and it the figure became this kind of techno Medusa. And I was very interested in puppetry, the body as a marionette, the mask has a kind of articulated jaw. And so I guess the work traces the journey of this figure that is in a constant state of adaptation, moving from a very Western landscape into a nature simulation in all these kinds of different realms. It's kind of deep time evolving, de-evolving. Uh, there's still a seed of hope, even though there's this real sense of a bleak space. You're kind of like observing a being constantly building and pulling apart and reimagining both its body and its environment. I'm interested that you said hope because it is bleak and scary in some ways, mm -hmm. but there's also miraculous moments mm -hmm. in it. And it reminded me of the, the miraculous thing that butterflies do when they liquefy their bodies mm -hmm. um, the pain, that, that must yep. be an extremely painful thing that little insect goes through. Yeah, sure. I felt a bit like that at times mm. that I was witnessing this strange private mm. moment that was an epic struggle for this microscopic yeah. creature. Yeah, totally. Um, there was definitely a violence to it mm. like, and I was feeling a lot of mourning and I continue to feel that sense of mourning. But in the end, the final image is of a kind of like prehistoric bird that's also a cyborg that's mm. come from all the figures before it. The way I see there's hope is it does continue to adapt even in very difficult circumstances. But, yeah, it's still very sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the wailing mm -mm. is sad. Yeah. And the, the Frankenstein lostness of mm -mm. the creature. Yeah, for sure. I think so. Almost like an endling of a type. And it is a solo being. And even though it's kind of like surrounded by these mechanical birds, which are... I love the birds. Yeah, they're, they're both familiar but also like so cold. The leftovers. Yeah, they? the leftovers, yeah. So what questions were you hoping to explore mm. in this work? Mm. In many ways it comes down to my body. You know, I have a long history investigating these kinds of mythical creatures born from clubs that then became stories in theatres and galleries and stuff like that. The early works are very much full body costuming and very much about spectacle and one of the provocations for this work was how I could transform myself mostly through my body, like the primacy of the flesh. And so I worked closely with Victoria Hunt, mm. my mentor and dramaturge. You're um, very lucky. Yes, she's amazing. <laughs> very blessed. 
to kind of like go very deep into the choreographic ecology of the work. Then thinking about the Anthropocene adaptation and resilience and my own relationship to non-humans. So I have two pet parrots that I live with. I, I wouldn't necessarily have chosen to got birds, but my partner loves them and I've really grown to love them because I do feel a bit fraught about captive birds. But we kind of started to build a shared language through mimicry, different like different sounds, listening to them and sensing what they mimic me and how I mimic them. And like you kind of imagine you're building a language together. And that very much seeped into the work and my relationship to all the different avian figures. So you've got the electronic bird toys that I found at Paddy's Market, which become like a key figure in the work. And then thinking about ancient bird myth and um, human-animal hybridity and how that um, is reflected in something technological. It's always this kind of interplay between the human, the machine and the animal and other forms. Um, this is a good time to share the audio sketch Justin has recorded. On each episode, I invite our guest to contribute a draft audio experiment or field recording that offers an insight into something they're exploring or thinking about at the moment. In this recording, we get to eavesdrop on Justin having an interspecies conversation with a bird friend. I love that with your birds that you, you're not just teaching them to speak your language, you're yeah. actually attempting to learn their language. Yeah. I've never I heard of anyone so. doing that. Yeah, right. <laughs> What's well, They mostly occupy our front room and then in the morning we let them into the, the kind of living room and they'll sit on my shoulder and I generally share some of my breakfast. Um, <laughs> but I get in trouble with my boyfriend because he feels like I've changed the hierarchy of things in the house because I feed them out of my mouth. <laughs> wow. But that would be quite natural for them. Yeah. That's, that's how a, they grew up. That's how they grew up. So. Oh, so you're like their, their mother. I'm not sure. <laughs> wow. It's just like nuts and mm. seeds or a bit of muesli. Wow. And do they um, replicate the interest in learning some of your mm. language? Yes. So there's been times when they've flown away from the house and they're both female birds and we used to call them the girls girls and so when I say girls they go oh <laughs> uh -huh. wow and actually that became a call and response when one of them flew away and I walked all the streets of Summer Hill shouting that out and she started to reply to me and then that's how I found her because often I go okay what if I just let them go would they survive would they be okay but she was pretty shell-shocked. They don't know how to fend for themselves. Mm. I mean, maybe they would learn. But she started to get attacked by minor birds and 
Kaira Wong and stuff like that because they're kind of like a small parrot meant to be in the fields of Paraguay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We seem to have a, a real interspecies mm. connection mm. with your parrots. I think so. I'm trying to give them the best life they can have. Because mm. I suppose that's community. I know you think mm. a lot about community. Interspecies mm. community. Yeah. And we are part of an ecology mm. and what's our responsibilities to our mm. animal friends. For sure. Yeah, my partner's got a total green thumb and he's transformed our home in Summer Hill from completely bare bones into almost like a rainforest. <gasps> and over the last 10 years I've witnessed how he's co-created a microclimate where there's frogs and fish and lizards and we have a elk horn that I put banana peels in and there's a possum that sleeps in there and eats the banana peels and like mm. all these kind of other collaborations that start to occur through the repetition that you start to notice. Mm. I want to talk a bit more about the birds, especially mm. now I know about your parrots. Mm. Um, my favourite moment was with the mechanical birds. Mm. And just to let listeners know that I haven't seen the show, um, there's maybe how many birds are on stage? It's about like um, seven. Seven. And they're kind of look like kitsch bird ornaments, mm, mm. but they actually can do things like talk and mm, say, mm. I see you yep, and yep. hello and <laughs> wolf whistle. Yeah, totally. And then they also have a capacity for you to record on them and they repeat back, you know, yes. those kind of toys that you can record into. And then there's one great moment where you set up two of them mm. and they start talking to each other and the language completely breaks down to just mm. static mm. being passed back and forth. Yep. And it's like, oh. It's so beautiful. <laughs> yes. Some of them are actually Eastern rosellas. Oh. I found them at um, Paddy's Market in Sydney. Yeah, it definitely came from having an exchange with the birds at home and then looking at these objects and, like, thinking about the beauty and the attempt to replicate something natural. So I call that scene the nature simulation. There's <laughs> a series of setups. But those electronic birds, I just spent a lot of time playing with them. And yeah, there's that thing about the mimicry and them recording what you say and then those feedback loops and the way things decay over time when you put all the birds together and they repeat each other's things. And just some really nice uncanny moments, like in the final scene of the work, I become this kind of like prehistoric bird and there's just one lone electronic bird still calling out that says I see you all those kinds of moments were very serendipitous but then became like poignant moments within the work yeah like what seemed like a little kitsch phrase in the context mm -hmm. the first time around at the end I see you just felt a really powerful mm. one little line to yeah. this creature yeah, that was a nice happy accident Tell us about the birds. What can they do? <laughs> what are their tricks <laughs> that oh, so you could curate from? These electronic birds, there's a small microphone embedded. They're all kind of different. So depending on the type of the toy, some have the sound of like rushing water or electronic bird sounds or like a recording of bird sounds. Because I was also thinking about lyre birds and the way that particular birds mimic the sounds around them as a kind of like, not camouflage, like some birds do it in order to 
attract other birds or to pull them away from their nests and to lay their eggs in their nests. So there's like a kind of parasitic nature to that. But then there's also like a survival nature to it. I think that for live birds, it's like mimicking sounds to create a kind of mating call. There's all those videos of live birds mimicking like human intervention, like the the click of a of a camera or like a chainsaw. So there's that kind of like horrible human intervention coming through that. Yeah, so I was interested both in the way that these objects had these ghosts of, of environments and beings, but also the way that I could add an input into them. And then I could also bring this kind of vocal language I'd cultivated with my birds that I live with and then say it to these birds. So it's this, this like constant cycling of the natural and the unnatural and these kinds of feedback loops. Mm. Can you tell me why the name carrion for yeah. this creature? Mm. I chose carrion because I was thinking about what remains. So carrion is the flesh of dead organisms that birds tend to feed on. I was thinking about vultures and it was kind of like the end of one world and then what a being extrapolates and what kind of nutrient that being can get from that decomposing matter and then use that energy to survive upon. It also sounded a bit heavy metal. <laughs> and it also, if you say carry on, mm. it also seems to talk about survival, mm. like keep going. Yeah, there was uh, some good responses based on that, but that was very un- unintentional. Right. Well, that's nice. <laughs> that's a nice discovery. Yeah, no, totally. I'd love to talk a bit more about your collaboration with composer Corin Aletto on mm. this work. What does that process look like? Me and Corinne worked on a few events before that through our collective Club Arte and there was just a nice sensing of shared interests as well as both our lineages being in the Philippines. And she has an incredible background in classical training and there was just like so many nice threads that were really drawing us together. Working together on Carrion, there was a series of residencies where we did a lot of improvisation. We would bring the objects into the space and I would improvise movement. And at the same time, she would be improvising on her keyboard or triggering different sounds, or we would set up the electronic birds and create different situations. So it was very much about a series of prototyping of objects, extended improvisation, and then honing that into small performance sequences that felt like the most potent elements. The work is very image-based and so I created like a mood board document with particular collages that I'd made. There were even paintings, particular paintings that inspired the choreography. So often she would go more based on a feeling. The opening scene was about a kind of Western romantic landscape. Like cathedral Mm. um, music, isn't it? Like the birth of some miracle. Medieval. We had a placeholder in there, which was Wagner's Parsifal, and she reinterpreted the late motif. We were like, what's Carrion's theme? Because we're both also very interested in fantasy films and sci-fi and the work of Ghibli. And she kind of created a theme that we used in the beginning that 
um, recurred throughout the work, including the final scene and these different reinterpretations of sonic phrasing. together once you've kind of got the the mood board and you've mm. got a palette of sound mm. when you're actually constructing the work is there a sense of the movement leading the sound or the sound leading the movement actually many years ago i did a work at next wave festival the river eats and it was alongside a collective dewey dell and they talk about this kind of like simultaneous birth of light and sound and movement and all the kind of dramaturgical elements and that had such a profound effect on me because I found their work so powerful. So for Carrie and we really tried to let everything kind of simultaneously lead. The development of, say, the costume elements was a back and forth that happened at the same time as the movement and the sound and the choreography, as well as the lighting design from Ben Sistern. I never predetermined a script. It's very much made as it comes. But there must be a process where you have to mm. lock it down. Oh, yeah, totally. But it wasn't that far from the end. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to revisit this, actually, because it rem- go, yeah, that's how you make work. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while. Still done a and every work. birth is kind of different, too, oh. do you find? Like, so you think you've learned all these lessons and then you start again. It's like, oh, what, what kind of birthing process is this one going to have? Oh, for sure. And I think that that work felt so good. But you can't, you can replicate elements, but you have to, to go listen to where you are at now and then what is the world now and kind of continue to hybridise it through being present. Just going back to Carrion, mm. as the lead artist on that project, what was mm. your vision for the sound world? Gosh, I guess it's like a multiple thing. We imagine the sound thinking about it as an ecology how every element has a story and is like a cell that replicates in other ways and is all interlocking. So we were like, okay, how do we connect to Filipino lineage through particular instrumentation? So she started to work with electronic Kulintang, but also like tap into like our clubland practice. So we were looking at trance music in the science fiction and it was very much a sea of ideas, but then you try to refine it so that then there's like an overarching feeling which probably was that late motif of the carrion theme that kind of held it together yeah i don't know <laughs> Man, mm. i don't know how we did it actually because it felt quite epic like when yeah, you mentioned yeah, yeah. sci-fi it was like yeah, yeah, yeah. it does feel mm. like it had these stirring kind of moments mm. and then these macro juicy sounds and then mm. big stretch of silence as well yeah, after sure. um yeah. carrion's mm. birthed essentially like it has this mm. real silence where it takes us right into the detail of putting their bones together. Totally. It's very different to previous works, you know, in in the past I've worked with a, another composer, Nick Wells, but it, the whole work was very much scored. There wasn't those kind of diegetic sounds that come from objects in space mm. or vocalisation. Those all became provocations to bring more liveness mm. to a world. There's some elements of folly, so Corinne triggers sounds live. Oh. Most of it's live actually. Really? Yeah, so 
say with the Belching Glacier, which is the big inflatable being, she has a palette of sounds like the magma and the, the bones crushing and the squelchy sounds, and she was cueing them on a timeline wow. based on things growing wow. and expanding. really added to the liveness mm. of yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's quite cinematic sound, but it, it mm. feels so yeah. very present. Well, there's that being at the end, which I puppet the mask that's present in the whole work that mm. then becomes this kind of prehistoric bird and it wails. And so she had to... Oh, to so she's to, sink, lip syncing to yeah, your, so, your mask mouth. Mm, yeah. Mm. That's the only way to bring that sense of the uncanny. Mm, and the wail is sort of like a, um, a mechanical sound, mm, isn't it? Mm. Like a white noisy, what is that it, sound? It was, it comes from the beings from before. So we were thinking about a kind of electronic prehistoric mm. dinosaur bird. Mm. So it's kind of hybrid of all those things. There's another scene in the nature simulation where there's like a vessel of water, a kind of perspex box that a light is um, reflecting into and then that creates these kinds of ripples of light on the backdrop. But I play with it with my fingers and she gives a sonic quality to it as I tap the water. She's on her synth and it kind of makes this gurgling sound. And I think those types of moments really confuse people because they're uncertain what's driving what and what's creating the sound and yeah i was wondering is there like mm. a hydrophone in there mm -hmm. are you amplifying the water somehow mm -hmm. there's a green at the back <laughs> yeah right. watching my fingers and playing live on her keyboard wow mm. oh it sounds like a very mm. satisfying collaboration yeah oh it's so so sublime and sometimes it's, i find it really exciting to bring mm. artists from another form into mm -hmm. the theater it's like you, you know they really pioneer new mm. ways of working i think so there was definitely blood, sweat and tears in that work. <laughs> it, um, it feels really honed mm, and sophisticated. Mm, thank you. Yeah, congratulations. Mm, hard to, <laughs> I feel like I was trying to make a new one and I was like, how did we do it? <laughs> oh, no, have faith, have faith. <laughs> yeah. Now, you presented Carrion around Australia as well as in the UK, Canada, Germany. Yep. Have I missed anywhere else? Um, and then, like, elements in different places. So I kind of broke it apart to make it more accessible for me to tour. So I took it to Museum Machan in Indonesia and um, Palais de Tokyo in Paris. And in terms of meaning making, did you notice any differences in the way the work was read in those different cultural contexts? Mm. When I brought the work to Montreal, which was in this very old theatre, underground, underneath the theatre, it was like, used to be a... Um, like a sideshow or something, had weird energy. But it, I think I did the best performance of my life there. I had all these people coming up to me crying afterwards and, like, young people from local theatre school were, like, writing poetic responses. And I do return to that feeling because I was, like, that was the time that I felt so embodied in my story. There was a generous form of exchange between audience. And um, it's a lot of... Connections to Sydney, actually, um, Victoria Hunt's girlfriend's community, so the queer community and Indigenous community over there, some of them came and you can feel that kind of international Indigi queer 
language that we can all tap into. Not there, there's, there's something there that's intangible and you feel connection through storytelling and movement and these types of hybrid languages. And that was really special. Sounds mm. magical. Mm. Huh. But then like some places that, like I did it at the Warwick Arts Centre in this very like traditional proscenium arch theatre and had like a curtain that lifts up. <laughs> wow, very different. <laughs> <laughs> and it sometimes it doesn't work. You know, it's so much about if you're present enough or if you're embodied and, but yeah, it also, it's very much about what that performance community have been exposed to and whether they're willing to engage with other types of hybrid languages. But then like doing the kind of club-based work or the art installation work, I did a version in Museum Machan in Indonesia that really grounded me. I was talking to this older Indonesian artist, Aramanyani, and she was saying that she could see how my mask-based practice felt very culturally relevant to my lineage. And it was one of the first times I could really understand and comprehend how it is something really old as well as contemporary and connected to all these different worlds. So are you able to say a little bit about what's occupying your creative headspace mm. now? What am I thinking about? It, it looks very full. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like continuing all the threads of the previous work and I'm making a new th- work for theatre that will come out in 2023 that will also be working with other performing bodies. Ah. Um and be inside and outside of work is a challenge. Um, I've been, I mean, I guess it's like being in a pandemic and thinking about how do you make a work in a time that's so violent and scary and when you have like hope for the future but simultaneously terrified and you kind of have a sense of completely different experiences globally. Sometimes I can feel really heavy and and feel like I need to speak to so many things, but what I'm most drawn to at the moment are visions of the future and of possibility and of new ways of being. And I think I'll continue to investigate the hybridity of my body, but very much about like how my body interacts, how I am in community. How do I describe an ecology on a stage where in the past it's very much been a solo practice? Mm. How can that be translated into the interaction between multiple beings? That's that's going to be a challenge. Mm. And, you know, so much coming from two years of trying to listen more to my surroundings and being present with the interspecies languages. How do I cultivate that type of language in a work. I've been thinking a lot about animism, the spirit in all living things. Recently, that's something I've been naming more and thinking about it in a cultural sense as well. Because in pre-colonial Philippines or pre-Hispanic, they called it anatism as opposed to animism. And there's this whole practice of anito. So it's the worship of these idols and the spirits in rocks and trees and in everything. 
And once I was able to name and feel that connection, I was like, oh, it's always been there in the practice, but um, it's something we're more focused on in the work now, now to kind of tease that out. Well, I can't wait to see what you're cooking up. Yes, no, for sure, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and so my last question I wanted to mm. ask you, um, in terms of sound-based artists that you mm. find inspiring, who do you have an art crush on in that space at the moment? Um, there's a few. Electronic musician and composer 33EMYBW, who's based in Shanghai. It's a very psychedelic type of electronic music. Um, a lot of the imagery she works with is replications of her form into like caterpillars and insects and self-adornment. She creates all these types of headdresses and textiles and I think it's something I really can connect to. Mm, so and visually and sonically yes, exciting. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, there's also Gabba Modus Operandi, the Indonesian-based sound collective that tap into a lot of like histories of shamanism within their culture, but then refract it through dance music and mm. craft. And I was thinking about why am I drawn to all these things? But I think it's that it's community-based, it's future folkloric, and it often comes from a DIY space. Mm. So there's another artist, female wizard based in Melbourne in Nam. I really love her new composition that she's creating. It comes from like dance party language, but it taps into something ancient. All these people tap into their own signs and symbols and cultural languages and find it very inspiring. Yeah. Great. Mm. Well, um, I look forward to checking those out and I'll yeah. put links in our notes oh, so yeah, that totally. um, people can discover those. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's been so nice talking to you. Oh, such a pleasure. Um, yeah, thank you for your time. And So uh, nice to revisit the construction and the themes and... It kind of feels like very grounding in lots of ways. Oh, mm. good, good. Well, I appreciate you sharing. Yeah. You've been listening to Audio Sketch, a chamber-made podcast hosted and produced by Rosalind Odes with title music by Fia Fiel. This episode's art date with Justin Tapasito Shoulder was recorded in Sydney on the lands of the Gadigal people. Musical excerpts from Carrion created by Justin and composed by Corinne Aletto, are provided courtesy of the artist. Audio Sketch has been made possible by the Australia Council and was commissioned as part of Chambermaid's Hi-Viz Practice Exchange. Hi-Viz is supported by the Helen McPherson-Smith Trust and the substation. Chambermaid receives multi-year funding from Creative Victoria. Thanks for listening. <laughs>